All right, church. If you have your Bibles with you, I hope you'll begin to make your way over to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is where we're picking up this morning. We've been walking through this book for a couple of months now and uh, going to continue to do so until the Lord says otherwise. And uh, I believe he has us here uh, purposefully, intentionally, and um, so I hope you'll make your way there. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I will give just a brief preface again, as I did last week, in that some of the the issues that Paul is going to address, some of the things that he's going to talk about uh, is within the context of a marriage union between a man and a woman. And so if you have little kids, they are welcome to go to junior church. They're welcome to stay in here as well. But I just want you to be aware of some of the content scripturally that we're going to be talking about. My intention is not to go beyond scripture and uh, to be sensitive to those things, but just want you to know ahead of time, all right? That just happens to be where we are in this text and uh, something that was very real uh, in, in Corinth and very relevant, and I believe it is just as relevant and real in our day as well and needs to be spoken of. And so uh, I think God has us here intentionally. Let me go ahead. Uh, I trust you've made your way there. Let me go ahead and just pray for us. Uh, I'd like to ask for the Lord's help in this, and then we'll jump into 1 Corinthians chapter 7 here in just a moment. Father, again, I, I thank you for this morning, Lord, that you've given. I thank you for the quietness of this moment. And Lord, I do pray that you might still our hearts. Lord, there's so many things that occupy our minds and our passions and desires and, and Lord, dictate our day. And Lord, I just pray right now that you would relieve us from those things. Lord, that we might be able to focus rightly on your word and what you have for us. Lord, that we might apply it rightly that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to understand. Lord, that we might walk in obedience. Lord, that even as we look at things that are sensitive, that are intimate, Lord, that we might do so with a proper respect and, and uh, sensitivity. And Lord, I pray that over me today. Lord, that you would give me a proper balance and sensitivity as we walk through this text. Father, be made much of this morning. I do pray that you would guard my mouth from error. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, church, I hope you've made your way there. If, if you've not been with us over these last couple of weeks, I'll give you a little uh, catch-up, if you will, uh, from where we've been. In the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul is really addressing items that he is aware of within this church sinful things that have taken place, and he's speaking very directly, very sternly, with a, a manner of rebuke and exhortation, hoping that they might change, that their lifestyle would change. These are, these are very big issues in the life of this church. What we're going to see as we get into chapter 7 is a shift in Paul's tone. He's going to essentially move from these, these big items that he's observed, that he's heard of, that people from Chloe's house have reported to him, to now addressing some items that he's received from the church. 1 Corinthians is not the first correspondence that's taken place between the church and Paul. In fact, Paul has received a letter from them. He's going to cite that here in just a moment. And so they've asked him some questions. They've made some statements. And so now he's going to begin to address some of those things. And so the tone is going to shift. It's now going to become much more, uh, how do I say this? 
more with regards to wise living, kind of a, a counsel, giving counsel, that kind of tone. Now, there are going to be points when he says, the Lord says this, thus says the Lord, but there's going to be other points where he says, I say this just based on wisdom. Being someone filled with the Holy Spirit, I see this as solid wisdom in, in how you should live and how you should flesh this out. So there's going to be a, a noticeable change as we move into chapter 7. Now, chapter 7 is largely going to be talking about marriage and the intimate relationship between men and women within the marriage relationship. He's going to talk about singleness, other things, uh, widows, widowers. He's going to address all those kind of relationships here in this chapter, okay? Uh, I had originally thought maybe, God willing, we would get through uh, verse 16. That's not going to happen today. I don't anticipate that happening at all. We might get through verse 9. I, I don't know. Um, not verse 16, that's for sure. And so uh, we'll just see where the Lord allows us to get to this morning. But let me go ahead and just read the text. And uh, I'm just going to read through verse 9. So picking up in, in verse 1, reading through verse 9 this morning out of chapter 7. I'm reading out of the New American Standard. It says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote... It is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise, also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, that it is good for them to remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Let me pray again for us. Father, again, I thank you for your word. And Lord, I thank you that it is always right and true and sharp. And Lord, I do pray that you'd fill me up this morning. Lord, guide my mouth and my heart. Give us, again, wisdom and discernment. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as we begin here, we see, as Paul begins in verse 1, now concerning the things which I wrote. So he's referencing this letter that he had received from them. He's now at a place, after having addressed some of these major gross immoralities taking place in the life of the church, he can now get to some of these topics that they've written him about. And he begins by saying, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, your translation may say, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Uh, that's a lot of translations. I think the Portuguese actually sticks to this and says not to touch. Now, something I mentioned last week is we need to remember that in the original Greek, there's no quotation marks. It's not as though we have that marker to denote, okay, this is a quotation. And so here, in all likelihood, probably what Paul is doing, just like he did last week up in uh, verse 12, the slogan that was uh, used by the Corinthians, 
in all likelihood, he's quoting this former letter that he had received. Something they had probably said is, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That, that was probably a quote from them, and he's now going to address this statement. Now, we only get a glimpse, we, we only get this quote. We don't have access to the entire letter that he received. So we don't know the context in which he's pulling this from. I presume, based off of his response, in verses 2 through 7 in particular, when, when it says it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, I presume what's intended here is speaking of a man being a husband and the woman the wife. I think what, what's being stated here, the intent behind this is it's good for a husband not to have sex with his wife. I think that's, that's the, the statement that he's going to address in two and following. Now, what we need to understand about the church at Corinth, if this is indeed the case, we've already seen in chapter 6 that there were some present in the church that built a theological framework supporting their sexual immorality, right? They used grace as a license for sin. I'm more spiritual, therefore I can do whatever I want with my body. They, they were over here on this side of the spectrum. And what we also see is evidently present within the church. There are those who are on the other side of the spectrum, and they're saying, okay, total abstinence is actually more holy and more righteous, even within in particular within the covenant relationship of marriage. So a husband and wife ought not have sex with one another in order to be more holy and righteous. So you got both ends of the spectrum here taking place in Corinth, all in the name of righteousness and holiness. What we see about the church at Corinth is this church is having a really difficult time understanding sex within marriage within a Christian relationship in a Christian worldview. They're having a hard time sorting this out. What, what does a biblical worldview look like regarding this? And you got some people way over here and you got some people way over here. They're all over the map. And so Paul is now going to give some counsel with regards to this. And I just want to zoom out for just a second because I think this is... Why is it that they're having such a hard time with this? I think probably because it's so pervasive in their culture. Their culture is saying anything and everything with regards to it. And it's leaching into the church. And, and I, think, I think this is why periodically it's appropriate for the church to make statements regarding certain things taking place in culture. Because at some point it begins to just leach in. And, and we as a church need to define where we are on certain things. And so that's just speaking broadly. I think that's what's happening here. Paul's nailing this down for this church to give them a proper understanding of what a biblical worldview looks like with regards to sex. All right? That's where he's going. So with that said, let, let's go ahead and go further into this. So the statement in verse 1 is, It's good for a man not to touch a woman or have sexual relation with a woman. He says in verse 2 and following, But because of immoralities, let me just pause there for a second, but because of immoralities, 
That seems like a weird place to start with your response here, Paul. Now, immoralities we're going to get to in just a minute. Down in verse 5, he's going to, I believe, unpack that a little more so. But he begins with a conjunction here, but because of. You could also translate that to the contrary. So Paul is not in support of this statement made by the Corinthians regarding sex within marriage. This refraining abstinence between a husband and a wife. He's not in support. He says, to the contrary. To the contrary, because of immoralities. Like I said, we'll come back to immoralities in a moment when we get to verse 5. But he goes on to say this. Each man is to have his own wife, and each woman to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill the duty, his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, what strikes us most profoundly in these three verses? What, what is so apparent as we read it? I, I think it's pervasive for us. It's apparent for us. And I think it would have been to the original reader. There is a profound equality in how Paul says these three verses. Everything he says of the man, he says of the woman. Everything he says of the woman, he says of the man. He, he says it side by side. There is a profound equality here that Paul is laying out, introducing with regards to the Christian marriage union. There's a profound mutuality here among the marriage union, the spouses. And that may not seem as radical in our day, but in Paul's day, this would have been totally radical. It would have been totally new. He's introducing something that is totally unheard of in his day. In, in the Roman context, in his day, marriage was primarily seen, and sex within marriage was primarily seen simply as a means of procreation and as a means by which the, the husband was satisfied by his wife. That was it. It was very lopsided. It was very one-sided, male-oriented. That was it. And what Paul here is saying, he's, he's bringing this up. He's, he's introducing an equality among the spouses here that is totally distinct in characterizing the Christian union of marriage here. Now... I've heard a lot, I'm sure we all have, uh, in particular in the last 50, 50 plus years. Individuals say that the Bible, it's just this old, archaic text that demeans women. It, it simply speaks down upon, it's, been, uh, it's a means by which to subjugate, and, and all these things, speaking poorly of, of the Bible. The reality is that's not true. That's not true. In fact, the Bible has done more good for equality among the sexes than any other book in history. If, if we just zoom out and, and survey the landscape of the nations, look at the places where, and this is not my main point, but, but we'll go here for just a moment, where, where gender equality is closest. It's in places where the gospel at some point, though it may be a post-Christian nation, 
those places at some point have been saturated by the gospel, impacted by the gospel. Their culture shifted. It changed because of the gospel. You want to see where the most disparity is among the sexes? It's in places where they've never had a, a saturating effect from the gospel in their culture. The gospel changes things. Scripture changes things. And so Paul here is, is doing that. He's introducing this, this new dynamic that should be understood within a Christian marriage. This equality among the spouses. Now, now don't mishear me here. I, I say equality. I'm not saying the same. We're not the same. Men and women are created distinct and different, though we're equal. I'm a complementarian, okay, not egalitarian. We complement one another in the way in which we were made for God-ordained roles, okay? But here, there's equal value and created in God's image, image bearers. Now, keep looking with me here. It says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. It would be very easy in reading through Scripture to get to a text like this and say, well, that's interesting, and just keep moving, right? We don't really want to linger on these kind of texts. This is awkward or strange, or what do we do? But church, we have to realize God's given us the full counsel here to guide us in our living, in the way in which we interact with one another in our relationships, how we relate to one another and how we relate to Him. And so we can't afford to simply put knowledge or Scripture up on a shelf and live our lives disconnected from it. So every avenue of our life is impacted by our understanding of God and Scripture. So what, what are some means by which this text impacts us? What are some things that it does? I, I think two things in particular, speaking again within the confines of a covenant relationship between a man and a woman in marriage. I think one thing that this text does, it removes any allowance of manipulation by withholding sexual intimacy. Let me say that again. It, it disallows any sort of manipulation by withholding sexual intimacy. L let me give you an example. Let's say a husband's supposed to rebuild the back deck and it's falling apart and the wife says, Honey, I've been asking you for weeks. I almost fell through that board out there. It, you know what? Until you get that thing redone... Our intimacy, it's done. It's not happening. You better get to work. Head to the hardware store. You can't do that. that that's not biblical. There are boundaries here, okay? Goes the same, goes the other direction too. You can't come home and say, well, honey, until dinner's on the table at 5.30 when I get home, I'm sorry. It, it goes both ways. He, he says that. It goes both ways. Stop depriving one another. So this sexual intimacy is a desire from both sexes here. It's not just one-sided. It's to be enjoyed by both. We can't use it as a tool by which to manipulate one another. The Christian marriage does not work that way. 
We don't use sex as a means by which to get what we want. I think there's another boundary here that is established in this text. It's this, that there are indeed boundaries even within the marriage bed. It's not as though one spouse can say, I can do whatever I want because I'm the authority. You can't do that. Why? Because there's a mutual submission one to another. No act, no anything can be done without the consideration of the sensitivities and the preferences of the other spouse. Can't do it. So just because you have authority over your spouse does not mean you can do anything you please. There are boundaries because of this mutual submission and this equality within the relationship. You see how God does that? How he frames this up? How Paul frames this up here? And puts good guidelines for us in our marriage? And how distinct the Christian marriage should be from the rest of the world? There's a way in which we operate even within the intimacies of our marriage relationship. Now, look with me at verse 5. Let's keep moving here. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. So he does say there, there may be an occasion whereby you have a, a, a period of abstinence from one another. But notice what he says. Except by agreement. Even this is a mutually agreed upon thing. It's not one spouse dictating. Mutually agreed upon. And it's only for a time. Why is that? Look what he says. Come back together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And I think this is what he has in mind as he says in verse 2, because of immoralities. Evidently, if one spouse deprives the other, it may invite, it, it may invite potential immoralities into the marriage relationship. It may be that the other spouse is tempted to look outside the bounds of marriage to have some sort of satisfaction. Now, I'm careful in how I say that, that it, it may invite. Why do I say that? Because ultimately, look, look what this comes down to. The temptation is not ultimately owed to the deprivation. It's ultimately owed to what? Look at how he says it. Come together again so that Satan will not tempt you. Come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. What's the temptation owed to? It's the lack of self-control. It's not ultimately the deprivation. It's ultimately because of the lack of self-control. Now, how does that impact us? What, how do we understand that? Here's something I think we need to understand and I think it's really relevant uh, for some of us here, maybe, in a size a room this size. I think it, it very well could be. Let's say that you've experienced the divorce or you're separated from your spouse. And the reason for the divorce or the reason for the separation is that you experienced infidelity from your spouse. And, and maybe you've been wrestling with, maybe you've been dealing with a guilt. And you keep saying to yourself, if, if I would have just done something different, if I would have been more available to my spouse, 
this wouldn't have happened. I want you to hear this. Their infidelity is not ultimately owed to you and any sort of deprivation that may or may not have happened. Ultimately, what Scripture says, it's to their lack of self-control. You ought not carry the weight and guilt of their infidelity, okay? God intends you to be free from that. Are there things that maybe you could have done differently? Maybe. But again, ultimately, it comes down to their lack of self-control. It's not on you to bear that. Now, let's, let's keep moving here. I, th- I think that is, that is so crucial for us to understand. And I think liberating for many. Because I know divorce statistically has impacted so many, even within the church. Let's keep moving here. Look what he says. He says, but I say this by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God. One in this manner and another in that. So Paul here, he says, I say this by way of concession, not a command. I I think he does that in part because he knows the inclination of the church at Corinth, which is to take anything that is said and immediately take it out of proportion. And so even in this, even in this, you may for a time abstain for one another for prayer for these purposes. I don't even think he's willing to make this a command. He's just, I'm saying this by way of concession. This is just some wise counsel here. So he's not even going to elevate it to that measure so as to keep the Corinthians from taking it too far. And he goes on to elaborate, but, but yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. Now he's starting to move into, again, this very uh, counsel type uh, language even as I am. Now, what was Paul? Paul was single, all right? We know that. Was he a widower, or had he always been single? We don't really know for certain. Some would argue he was a widower. Others, that, that he was, had always been single. But notice what he says. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and one in another. As we continue to move through this in the weeks ahead, we need to understand and realize that Marriage, it is a gift. It ought to be treated as such. Singleness, it's also a gift. And ought to be treated as such. You, you ought not look down on one another because of a difference there. In fact, I, I think our temptation is to read, read that into this. Look, look what he says next. He says, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. So essentially saying if they remain single... But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. That's a weird statement. We read that and say, well, Paul, you kind of make it sound like marriage is a plan B. If you can't control yourself, you get married. And it's more spiritual to be single. That's not what he's saying. In fact, in the weeks to come, we're going to see he unpacks that even more so. He's going to lay all those things out in the weeks ahead. Uh, I encourage you. Feel free, go ahead and read ahead this week. That's all right. You can do that. But let me say this. First of all, he's not giving priority to singles over marriage because he's already said what? Both is a gift. Each has his own gift. And the fact that he simply says it's good for them, I think our inclination is to say, well, if this is good, it means the other's bad, right? That's how we read things. 
consider this for a moment. Um, you guys know that I like to go out and eat, uh, you know, for lunch around here and find places in the community. Douglas and I, we've already shared about our adventures in the Chinese restaurant and uh, the fried um, bananas. But uh, we found another restaurant a couple of weeks ago. And uh, or I, I discovered it, I guess I rediscovered it. Douglas knew it from a former age. Anyways, uh, it, it's a couple blocks away and it's over towards Campobello, that direction. I can't remember the Portuguese name for it, but I think it translates to my mother-in-law's corner or something like that, I don't, I don't know. So anyways, we go to this place and part of the reason I love it is one, it's inexpensive. To the, food, the food's good, and it has a dessert with it, right? So you, you don't just get your meal, but you have a dessert. Well, the desserts are on this little refrigerated table type thing. And you can go and you can pick out what Douglas often does, the pumpkin. And it's this little pumpkin puree with sugar, I assume, and that kind of stuff. Well, what I always get is the avocado. There's this whipped avocado. We don't do avocado in the States as sweet. Avocado in the States is savory, but it's this sweet, fluffy, uh, sugary goodness of avocado, right? So we both go get that at the end of our meal. We both sit down and eat it, and we both enjoy it, and we both make the proclamation, man, this is good, right? Now, because Douglas's pumpkin is good, does that mean my avocado is bad? No. Both can be equally as good. Just because there's an alternative, it doesn't mean that it's bad. So it is with marriage and singleness. Just because Paul makes the assertion one is good, doesn't mean the other is bad. Both are good, both are gifts from God, and they need to be understood as such. So we're going to unpack that more in the weeks to come. Um, I think that's probably an appropriate place to, uh, to transition for us. But what I'd like to do is this. One, I want to ask a couple questions before we have a moment. We're gonna, we have communion today, but what we're going to do is, before that, I want to just introduce a couple of questions here for us. And I want us to have a time of response where we can respond to the Word in an obedient fashion, whatever that looks like. And so when we consider this text, I, I want us to consider a couple things. One is, is this, maybe most basic. Do you consider the gift of marriage in your life, if you're married, do you consider it as a gift? Or do you hold it as something begrudging? Same with your singleness. Is it something you regard as a gift? Or is it something that you have with bitterness or begrudgment? Paul says they're both gifts. Do we regard it as such? Maybe you've experienced infidelity and you've been carrying that guilt and today you just need to go before God and say, Lord, Lord, help me to be free from that. As I see scripturally, that's not on me to carry and bear and help me to heal in that. Maybe that's what you need to do this morning. You need to know that it's not yours to carry or maybe you've just never thought that God had any purpose or any, um, how do I say this, thoughts towards your intimacy within your marriage. Maybe you thought that was totally removed from the purposes of God. And today you, you begin to realize, huh, God actually cares about that too. 
And you just need to go before God and say, Lord, help me. Help me to understand this. Help, help me to begin to understand all things in light of you and your purposes and your ways. Maybe that's where you are this morning. So I'm going to invite our worship team to come back up and I'm going to pray for us. And they're going to play a song. And uh, you just be obedient to respond as God leads you, all right? Uh, normally we would have a time where people go outside. It's still raining, I think. So um, if, if you would like to pray or have, one, have someone pray for you, uh, I'll be down up front here and uh, be available. And um, I just want you to examine your heart this morning, all right? You do business with God, what he's calling you to do this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, again, I, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your goodness and your grace. And I thank you that you do care about every aspect of our life. And Lord, I, I pray that over these next few moments, we be willing to evaluate our hearts, our lives, even things that we might have considered off limits to God. Lord, I pray that we, Lord, we be real with ourselves, we be honest. And we make an evaluation and that your Holy Spirit would draw out any place, bring to light any place where there's darkness, where there's immorality, where there's insincerity. Lord, I pray that you would expose that within us that we might repent and be transformed. So Father, do that work of sanctification in our lives today. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.